0: To The Extent That is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection.
1: Hello and welcome to the next in our series of ABA Recent Developments podcasts. I'm Ann Stedman, co-editor of Recent Developments 2020, and I practice corporate and commercial litigation at Ross, Aaron, Salmon, and Moritz in Wilmington, Delaware. Today we have three great speakers to discuss what's new in appellate law. We have Judge Tom Ambro of the 3rd Circuit from my home state of Delaware. We have Judge Jill Pryor of the 11th Circuit, who's based in Atlanta. And we have Todd Lundell, partner at Snell & Wilmer in Orange County, California, who is a certified appellate specialist. With those introductions, we're going to do something a little bit different on this episode. I'm going to turn things over to Todd, who will be guiding the discussion and asking the judges for their views, as well as offering some of his own insights from the practitioner perspective. So with that, I'll turn it over to Todd.
2: Hello, Judge Pryor and Judge Ambrose. Thank you for joining us today on our podcast. Glad to be with you. Hello. So this is in connection with our recent development uh, series of uh, books that gets published every year. And uh, I thought we would start with the most recent development in appellate practice, which is Uh, and I think we'll just touch on this briefly, but um, is the COVID restrictions uh, that prevent gathering in courtrooms in most states. And I thought I would ask you in each of your circuits how that has affected your practice, uh, whether you've been able to continue sort of seamlessly. Um, So are you doing um, oral arguments now remotely, I take it?
0: Yeah, Judge Pryor, why don't you go first?
3: Sure, Um, well, we are not currently in our courthouse. We have a a necessary staff there to take care of filings and, and such, but most of the judges are still working remotely with their law clerks. Which I must say we've been able to do very effectively with our technology. As far as oral arguments, we are doing all telephone arguments and in advance of the argument we're asking each party whether they would prefer to submit the case on the briefs or participate in the telephone arguments. And we found it's probably about two thirds who want to go through with the arguments. Sometimes those motions are opposed, one side wants to argue and the other doesn't, and then we have to decide. But we found that it's been pretty effective and there's a lot less talking over one another than I would have expected. I think it it may be frustrating for practitioners who can't see our faces when we look confused or bored or whatever it is. Um, but some have told me that it's an advantage because, like I said, there's less talking over and judges tend to take turns and let the practitioners answer the questions.
0: Yeah, well, when, when we were
2: you- uh, having a little pre-call to discuss this, I was surprised to, to hear that, that um, you, you, from a judge's perspective, have found it very helpful because you don't talk over each other like I just did to uh, Judge,
0: uh, Judge Ambrose. So Judge Ambrose, please go ahead. No, not a problem at all. <laughs> at home, I get talked over all the time, so it doesn't make any difference in my case. <laughs> the I'm in the courthouse almost every day, including weekends, uh, unless I'm at our uh summer place in in maryland when i have an office down there so everybody else is working remotely so it's not affecting my coming into the office the oral arguments since march 16th have been all by audio at that point we were asked by i think the administrative office of the courts to prefer audio as opposed to uh anything relating to video because that might take up more bandwidth than was, uh, than was hoped for at the time. The first arguments seem to go well. And the interesting thing is among the judges, just as Judge Pryor said, we tend to listen for the cues from our colleagues as to when they're finished with a line of questions. When we're on the bench, sometimes we don't listen as well as we should, and we're trying to get out uh, our points of concern. And to some extent, we may not. We may be interrupting more than we should. That seems to happen less via audio. One of my colleagues has said, however, that he misses seeing the body language of the attorneys. And the attorneys, have more than one has said to me, that she or he misses seeing the judges in person because you can then anticipate when you see a judge about ready to interject with a comment or another question or by the facial tone, they're not really buying your argument and your theme needs to adjust to deal with that. And it's a little tougher to pick it up just by audio. Maybe sometime later it'll happen because we're more adept at it, but currently a lot of counsel say that audio is not as good an indicator as in person. Todd, what what are your thoughts?
2: Well, so I was actually very encouraged to hear um, that from, a, from the judge's perspectives, it is working well to just have audio because uh, I think uh, that would be frustrating somewhat from a practitioner's perspective um, but ultimately, uh, communicating with the judges is what practitioners are trying to do and answer the judge's questions. So if it's working from the judge's perspective, I guess, uh, I, I would be inclined to think that it's working from the pa- practitioner's perspective, since that's the goal. Uh, I've done a couple of oral arguments, um, both in the California court of appeal and the, um, federal courts and, uh, both of them were via zoom. Well, one was via a different platform, but they were both video uh, calls. And um, they worked remarkably smoothly. Uh, I found that because the camera is very close up to the judges and the audio was very good, I could see uh, their body language. I could see when one of them wanted to ask a question. And so I could pause and and allow that to um, go forward very smoothly. Um, So I've actually wondered whether going forward, uh, given the success of the video, uh, oral arguments. Whether some courts might continue um, to just do that and not require counsel to come in, and I guess that remains to be seen. But uh, I, so I've been actually pleased with how it's gone so far, and I'm pleased to hear from the court's perspective that it it seems to be working. Um, would you have any uh, advice for lawyers who are trying to get used to this? You've obviously done a lot more of the. Um, phone oral arguments now than any practitioner has
0: do you have any tips and advice for them the key i think the key thing is just to remember that oral argument via audio or argument via video oral argument in person all comes down to the same thing hey judge tell me what your concerns are tell me what your problems are and i'm going to answer them and the more you can find out from a judge what her or his issues are the things that are, are holding that person up from going your way perhaps the better off you are the worst thing that can happen sometimes our argument is you don't get any questions
2: those are the worst oral arguments from a practitioner's perspective i found that uh, then you're just trying to guess what the judges are thinking and that's uh, usually never a, uh, a good thing so i prefer uh, as a practitioner to even get hard questions because if the if the judges are you know, have some hard issues with my case, I would rather give, be given that last opportunity to to address them. So yeah. I, I agree with you 100% on that. Judge Pryor, do you have any um, advice for lawyers who might be participating in a, video, in a telephone uh, conference for the first time?
3: Well, following up on what Judge Ambro just said, I would say simply answer the question. Don't delay or avoid the question. And just because we can't see you doesn't mean you're more likely to get away with not answering the question. Uh, I think when you do that, you're hurting your credibility, but as you said, you're also missing your best chance to address what's bothering the court about your case. The only thing I would add to specifically with regard to telephone or video arguments is be sure you speak clearly and maybe try to speak a little more slowly than you normally would to ensure that we can hear you and be extra careful not to cut judges off in the middle of questions, wait until they're finished and then give your answer.
2: That's very good advice. I think the slow, um, talking a little more slowly when you're on an audio call is important. And I I prepared an outline uh, for an audio uh, oral argument that I've got coming up next month. And I have built in places where I want to pause to give plenty of opportunity for a judge um, to be able to break in because I don't want to just talk and talk and talk and not uh, have those sort of natural breaks where a question could arise because the questions are obviously the most important thing from,
0: from my perspective. Todd, Todd, let me ask you a question. When you go up to the podium, and I'm going to ask the same thing of Judge Pryor when she was in practice, what do you take with you?
2: I now take only um, uh, a piece of paper with a brief outline on it and my iPad because I have now all of the briefs and appendices and everything that I might need loaded onto my iPad with bookmarks uh, for the most important things. Uh, So if I needed to find something in the record, I could find it on my iPad very quickly. So those are the two things I
0: have with me at the podium. Judge Pryor, what did you take with you?
3: The longer I practiced, the less I took, and uh, as I gained more experience, what I did was similar to what Todd said. i take one piece of paper with a brief outline of my argument, and, and all my work in getting rendered for argument was geared toward narrowing my argument, clarifying my argument so that I could fit it on three or four bullet points on a page. Sometimes took a second page where I would have key record sites. Listed in case the court asked for them. But I found that the more I took up there, the less I could find. And there really wasn't the time to dig through papers or um, an iPad might work, but I'm not sure I'm uh, astute enough with that at the moment. So just usually two pieces of paper.
0: Yeah, I I would start off when I had oral arguments on the appellate level, it would be three pieces of paper. And eventually I got down to one eight and a half by 14. Uh, side of uh, a uh, yellow legal notepad. One item would be my my theme or themes. Usually you don't want more than a couple so that if there's a law in the action, you can come back to your theme or try to take a tough question and filter it back, uh, pivot to your theme. Uh, key cases so that I didn't forget a case name and just very briefly what they said. I mean, like a word or two just to jog my memory And then some key questions based on moots that I would anticipate the court asking, and particularly the tough questions, and a word or two that would, again, just give me a cue as to what the answer might be. Again, the idea being that whatever answers you give, you try to make as succinct as possible. A friend of mine, one time at the Supreme Court, when she was at the Solicitor General's office, in the course of 30 minutes, got 70 questions. And so you can't filibuster up there. You have to be able to answer quickly, it has to be succinct, and it has to be on point.
2: And that is particularly true in the Supreme Court, but I think it's good advice for all appellate lawyers to be able to answer uh, the judge's questions uh, succinctly and directly. Um, And then, you know, you can pivot back to your themes once you've done so, but uh, to make sure you've actually answered the questions. Much like Judge Ambrose, I do prepare before oral argument a list of hard questions and a brief outline of how I would respond to those hard questions. But I, I found over the years, I don't take that to the podium just because. The question never gets quite asked in the same way that I have it written down. Or, and so I found that piece of paper to not be very helpful. So I've, I've taken to leaving that um, at home. But it, it's definitely an important um, piece of my preparation
0: as well. When you talk about, we, so far we've essentially been talking about oral argument. But what about your briefs? The writing you do to the court, I mean, often you have a number of judges, including colleagues of mine in the past, who have said, you know, by far, the most important thing to them is the argument made that's written, as opposed to the argument made that's oral. Because so often, a judge will go into court with her or his mind made up, and you want to try to get to that person's mind, that person's thinking, before that person's feet become in concrete. What are the things that, uh, maybe I'll start with Judge Pryor, what are the things you really look for in briefing?
3: I think some of the most experienced and best practitioners do this both in brief writing and also in preparation for oral argument. And that is, think about how you believe the court should write the opinion. And write your brief with an eye to that and think about how you want the opinion to be written and also how you think the court is likely to write it that will make that will prepare you for oral argument and help make our questions about the next case a lot easier to answer so think about that as kind of a structure um the other thing is i i say don't hide anything always put in the bad facts and the bad law and explain why you win anyway i used to do this when i tried cases too because you never wanted the other side to shock the jury with something bad for your side that you hadn't brought out first so it it increases your credibility as an advocate, to be totally candid and then, as I said, explain why that bad factor, that back law, bad law, doesn't mean you lose.
2: I'm always surprised to see appellants, a, a um, even experienced appellate practitioners sometimes, <clears throat> not addressing their most difficult problems in their opening brief and thinking that saving it for a reply brief is going to be somehow advantageous. Um, because I agree, uh, Judge Pryor, that dealing with those up front. Uh, Gives you credibility and then uh, uh, allows you to set the stage for the court uh, in a way
0: that trying to just do it in a reply does not. What you're hearing from all three of us so far, and I, Judge Pryor started it, credibility is everything. You're trying to persuade with credibility. To be credible, you got to be believed. To be believed, you have to be believable. And to be believable, you have to tell the truth. So if there's a weak Point. Deal with it up front. I remember I once had a case. Now, this was an oral argument. I was asking people about brief writing. But the same thing applies to brief writing, where we said to a counsel, this is a Fourth Amendment case. Didn't the police officer here really mess up by the the way he handled this particular arrest and and the search, etc.? And the USA Assistant United States Attorney said, Your Honor, we screwed up if we hadn't screwed up, I wouldn't be here. But let me tell you why I think we still might win. And he reverted back to his theme. He had pivoted and did just a masterful job of doing it. Because the minute he said that, he disarmed us with a whole lot of questions. And we were now prepared to listen because somebody was telling us that there are weaknesses to his case. The same thing applies to brief writing, as I just said. Uh, The key thing with brief writing is, look, judges read mounds of paper. Uh, so you have to write to stand out. And the shorter it is, the better it will be. One of my colleagues, uh, Julio Fuentes, once said that, that if you want me to read it carefully, make it short. If you want me to skim it, make it long. And I remember one time uh, reading something where Justice Ginsburg has said that frustration and irritability set in well before page 50. So get your theme or themes out, probably not more than two, uh, quickly. Determine your strongest issues. If you can't defend it, don't brief it. Don't think of briefing as a law school exam where you spot all the issues and say something. That doesn't work well uh, on appeal. Basically, if you do a shotgun brief, it's going to be treated as, hey, that person doesn't really think that he or she has a whole lot of by way of strong arguments. You might want to outline your arguments just to make sure that you're presenting them as well. As we said before, acknowledge your weaknesses right up front. If you know your judges that are that will you'll appear before, know what makes them most interested in arguments of in almost any argument. Are they are they really involved with the text of a statute? Or a regulation, and perhaps not so much with legislative history. Well, so if, if that person's a textualist or an originalist, then focus more on the text. Uh, are they worried about the consequences? If I rule your way, counsel, what's going to happen down the way? What's going to happen, going to happen in the next case? Is that going to, in some way, put me uh, in in a bind? Uh, wh- is it what's fair? I mean, Brown v. Board of Education was the quintessential fairness case, I think, or uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren said, when you write this opinion up, he said to his law clerk, just tell them it's simple justice. I don't think simple justice ever got into the into the opinion that came out in May of 54, but it was the, became the title of Richard Kluger's book with the seminal work on Brown v. Board of Education and the cases that went with it. Uh, it was just simple justice, simple fairness. So think of all these types of things. And present your arguments in a way that somebody who picks it up might really want to read it, might want to go on to the next page. Uh, relying so me- on precedence is, can be very, very difficult. I'm, I'm taking too much time. But once again, if, if, if I say to you, this case supports me, and then Todd says, no, it doesn't support Ambro; it supports me. Well, give me a reason, a thread as to why Lundell's position
2: is better than ambrose yeah i was actually just going to ask some follow-up questions on that because i think this is one of the most difficult parts of being an appellate practitioner you become so familiar with the arguments in a case and and the record and you see you know multiple nuances and you know the uh, other side in their respondents brief is going to cite uh various cases um, and is going to you know that you don't think is relevant is going to bring up various nuances and you're trying to deal with all of that while also keeping, as you said, it short and simple. And um, I have found that in that sense, organization uh, can really be helpful. Uh, in that you can, if you can organize your main uh, piece of your argument in a in the, in one section of the brief. As Judge uh, Pryor said, in a way that you know the, the appellate court could almost take it and write an opinion from, um, and then deal with a lot of nuances elsewhere, where the court can deal with those if it cares about them. <laughs> and you know, you, you don't mind if they skim that if they if they don't are not interested in it. Um, that's how I deal with those sorts of problems of, of lengthy brief writing. But I'm interested from the court's perspective whether you find that pers- uh, persuasive or whether there's other things you've seen. Uh, that are more effective strategies in, in trying to deal with the nuances of a case while also keeping the brief, you know, tight and not right at the word limit.
3: Todd, I think that's a great idea. And uh, my mentor at my law firm, Emmett Bondurant, wrote what we always called the Bondurant Introduction. And it was way longer than some people thought an introduction should be, but it basically laid out the case so that when you go into the substance part of the briefs, then you know what the case is, you know what the important points are. And then I think you you develop the detail. When I tried cases, I always tried to take the approach of I wanted everyone on the jury to understand the case at a basic level and who... For those who are interested, there would be a lot of detail for them to delve into as well. And I think you can take the same approach in brief writing. Um, I also think, I I think one way you can handle this too is be sure that you're not working too close to the deadline, get your brief done well in advance, and then you can set it aside and you go back and you keep editing it to make it clearer and more concise. And I think you'll find even after you've edited it a number of times, you'll still find things to cut and ways that you can say things more clearly.
2: That I, is the I, best piece of advice and one of the hardest to follow. <laughs> no,
0: I, I can't tell you how much I agree with that. A friend of mine who's now on the D.C. Circuit, Judge Patty Millett, would write the brief and then put it away. And then before our argument and also in connection with the brief would be consulting with others. What do you think about this idea? What do you think about that idea? What do you think about this approach? And you're testing. You're testing with people that whom you respect their views, their pros. and The more and more you test, the better and sharper and more focused is your argument. And also, it may make your language more simple. I mean, I tell my clerks, for example, I said, if you want somebody to emulate in terms of writing, how about Linda Greenhouse when she wrote for the New York Times and also still has a column who could take the most nuanced concepts and make them understandable to the average reader of the New York Times? Uh. Warren Buffett, he writes a letter to his sisters every year for the Berkshire Hathaway annual report, then gives it to Carol Loomis in D.C., who edits it for him. And whether he's talking about derivatives, which are about as complex as it can be, or other very complex subjects, you read that report when it comes out in March, and you say, wow, I get it. I mean, it's almost like you want to be—you want to think of, like Hemingway, not Faulkner, because all too many briefs get so involved that you really wonder where they're going. I don't find briefs all that helpful, to be honest, because so often they're reciting to cases that I, that I don't necessarily trust the, the slant that's put on the cases, and so I often, almost always, uh, well, although I'll read the brief. The opinion of the district court, I think, is more helpful to me, at least in understanding what the issues are. And then the bench memos of my clerks. I have a bench memo, which later gets uh, synopsized into a, a bench outline with some key questions. And for me, it's like studying for an exam. So you're trying to get a discussion at oral argument with counsel uh, rather than something that's abstruse and, and loses all of us in the uh, in the weeds.
2: So that's a, that's a actually a good segue into the next topic, because I know that as a appellate practitioner, what sort of happens behind the curtain of a court of appeal can sometimes be a, a mystery. And uh, I always like to ask judges, uh, what, how are the cases decide, in your courts decided, and particularly in your chambers, because I recognize that each chambers is a little different. And again, as we were talking beforehand, I, I know uh, Judge Pryor, you talked about that your bench memos are a little more informal than Judge Ambrose. So can you Judge Pryor, maybe start by talking about uh, how are cases decided in your courts. What role does the do the do your clerks play? Uh, how important do you find the briefs? Those sorts of things.
3: That's a pretty big question, Todd. No. <laughs> 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 but well, in our court, about. 20 to 25% of cases are oral argued, orally argued. They're screened for argument. So the rest of our cases are decided on the briefs and the records. So there are really two different processes for those types of cases in my chambers. With oral argument cases, my clerks write bench memos, but I also read all the briefs and all the significant parts of the record. So my bench memos from my clerks are really more of George, a dialogue or a conversation. Can I ask? Sure.
2: Can I ask, how, who screens those, those cases for oral argument? Are they pre-screened before your office even gets them?
3: So we have a staff attorney's office who screens them initially, and so they'll send a certain percentage to oral argument. I don't know what that is, but then they come to us as uh, non-argument cases, and any one of the three judges on the panel can send the case to oral argument. So it's sure. a combination of procedures. Uh, so my clerk's bench memos are... Are kind of informal dialogues with me about not just reciting what's in the case or in the briefs um, and in the record, but really analyzing it, talking about why this is more important than that, pointing out anything that may have been missed in the briefing, um, suggesting some questions for me to an- to ask. And then I will talk to the clerks about the memos. Sometimes on the bigger cases, we'll all sit down as a chambers and discuss the case. We do not share bench memos, generally speaking, on our court. Each judge prepares for argument independently and comes to the argument without having spoken to the others. There are some exceptions to that. For example, we notice a jurisdictional issue or um, something that we need to discuss during argument, and we sometimes will ask the parties for supplemental briefing or to be prepared to answer certain questions at argument. But we normally come together. We hear the argument, and then we conference, and that's the first time we will have spoken about the case. And Judge Ambrose,
2: is that also true with you? That the first time you talk about the um, the case no. is generally
0: at oral argument? No, it, it is. Uh, I have asked. It depends on the panel. But when I started with the court, some of the older judges were of the view that I'll come into oral argument having developed the case on my own, you develop it on your own, and then we'll talk at conference, and you may also, you'll get from some of the questions I may ask at our argument. Years ago, I was reading Jerry Gunther's biography of Learned Hand, and in it, he had described when Hand often would send pre- or argument memos to his cousin, Gus Hand, and to uh, Judge Tom Swan. And they would go back and forth prior to oral argument in the idea, with the idea that they, maybe they can get a consensus. If not a consensus, maybe someone can convince the other. But at the very least, you know going into oral argument what the other judge is thinking. It, nec- it won't necessarily cause you to have your thinking uh, bowled over. But if you are down a wrong path, it would be nice to get sorted out before our argument rather than after. And so I have suggested that to a lot of panels with newer judges, and it's been over the years, and it's been received well. In terms of bench memos, it's interesting. We don't normally have bench memos uh, of other clerks submitted to us, but sometimes it's done, especially in a very difficult area. And I can't think of a single instance where one has been requested and denied. It's just that it usually isn't done. In terms of picking cases for oral argument, uh, our court probably is even, as a court, probably less than 25% right now in terms of asking for oral argument cases. If I'm on a panel, it's somewhere between 33 and 50 normally, right around 40. uh, because. Most judges think, okay, I'll ask for oral argument if there is a reasonable chance that I think I might reverse. I think there's a whole lot of other reasons beyond that. Is it a high-profile case where the public can see you do the public portion of your job? Is it a pro bono case? Oftentimes, as you know, pro bono cases go to a partner in a firm, but their partner has an associate work on it. And that associate, if that associate has done a really good job, you want to say publicly to her or him, thank you for the work that you've done. And is it a case where you are, the, the issues are really complex and you're trying to develop them further? Is it a case where you want to test out a new idea that hasn't been tested before. And so you may ask counsel to do supplemental briefing even before oral argument, or at least be prepared at oral argument to discuss it. It may be a case where you want to make sure that the whole panel does a deep dive on what superficially may appear to be an easy case, when in fact, the more and more you dig, the more and more you find that it is much more complicated than you had, had initially perceived. And so all those reasons, and indeed others, uh, I, I tend to ask for or argument in more cases than, than most of my colleagues. I happen to like or argument. I think it focuses me on cases in the best way possible, even at or argument, with all the work that's gone into it beforehand. And it hones my thinking, I would think, in at least 50% of the cases. that it change my, the result. On an issue, probably less than 5% of the time, but five still, out of 100 cases, that could be three, four, five cases on a particular issue where you change your mind as a result of oral argument, and that makes you a better judge. It makes you, the panel a better panel. I don't know. Judge Breyer, how do, what do you think?
3: I agree with you on the reasons why we send cases to oral argument, Um I hadn't thought about the angle of pro bono counsel and ele- giving them the chance to argue. As a practical matter, that often happens because if they represent pro se persons, then they need someone to argue. But uh, the other reasons, very much so, those those are the same ones that we apply. Um, in terms of, I'm very interested in the issue of how effective oral argument is and changing minds are affecting the panel from having been a lawyer. So I tend to keep track, although I don't have a percentage, but I'm supr- I was surprised when I came to the bench at the number of times that oral argument changes what the panel does. It's not always the outcome of the case, although it is in, in some not insignificant number of cases, but it very frequently changes the way we write the opinion. And um, it, it's, fairly frequent, frequent that we come into the conference and somebody says, you know, I really hadn't focused on this point, but after I heard the argument, I see the importance of that.
2: I agree. And sometimes the way the opinion is written can can have real outcome for our clients too, even if the outcome doesn't change. I'm actually very, right. um, uh, I think encouraged, most, most appellate practitioners will be encouraged by that discussion of how often it can shape, oral argument can shape an opinion because uh, it's easy to feel like the decision has already been made by that point and you wonder uh, how effective oral argument can be. And uh, it's a good reminder that it can be effective and we need to uh, spend time uh, working on that part of our craft. And I will say, I, I will thank both of you for the the pro bono part of this because I, I know as a young appellate lawyer, that's how I cut my teeth getting my first arguments um, was in pro bono cases. And the, the court here in the Ninth Circuit has a pro bono program where they guarantee oral argument for uh, anyone who takes the case. And it is a way for young lawyers to uh, have an opportunity to stand before the court and present oral argument. And those cases uh, were two of my first oral arguments and were really effective. And I won one of them, which was uh, really great and um, really a, a wonderful opportunity for young lawyers.
0: So... Um, I appreciate I, that. I think I think one of the things that happens with pro bono cases and you you often see law school clinics that take cases or firms that take cases if you are having your first or one of your first oral arguments before a court of appeals you are going to be ultra prepared not just prepared in terms of the material <laughs> but prepared in terms of the moots that it takes to make you more at ease with the process. And innumerable times, I have been shocked at how good counsel is at oral argument, despite the fact that they are very young. I mean, some of the best oral arguments I have witnessed uh, in panels in which I have participated have been younger attorneys coming to the court for their first oral argument, perhaps from a clinic, perhaps from a law firm, but it is, uh, it is truly a joy to see that type of professionalism so early.
2: So that's actually maybe a good point. We can segue into what I think we're, we're going to run out of time here a little bit. But our, our final topic, which would be appellate specialization. I think one of the most significant uh, developments in appellate practice from a practitioner's perspective over the last decade or more has been the specialization. Um, this has been particularly true in the in the United States Supreme Court, where there are now a, a small handful of, or relatively small handful of firms and attorneys who handle uh, a very large percentage of the of the briefing and oral argument in the Supreme Court. And uh, you know, from a an appellate practitioners' perspective, this is good. I I, I think we bring value to um, appeals, obviously. Um, but I'm wondering from the court's perspective, have you seen uh, an increase in the in the number of the same times you see repeat players in your court and whether you think appellate specialization, well, how you think appellate specialization has improved the briefing and maybe some some downsides of that as well? Judge Prior,
0: go what? ahead.
3: We see a fair number in large cases of appellate specialists, and I you know, you're going to get a good quality brief, you know, that the issues are going to be on target. They're not going to have missed things. And, and I think importantly, know how to present to a court of appeals as opposed to a jury or a trial court. I think those are all tremendous advantages of having specialized appellate counsel. On the other hand, it does concern me going back to what judge Ambrose was talking about, as far as uh, young pro bono, pro bono attorneys getting experience. I worry that having a appellate specialist deprives Lawyers of some of those opportunities Uh, and I and I think it is good that lawyers get to argue their cases generally speaking in in the appellate courts. And having been there at the trial or below they tend to know the record better than anybody coming in cold ever could. I think if if you're going to bring in an appellate specialist or if you are an appellate specialist that person needs to know the record as well as any trial lawyer ever did because Courts don't take kindly to you saying, I'm sorry I wasn't there at the trial, I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Indeed. And in fact, I, I have found as an appellate practitioner that sometimes uh, the, the best use of what I can bring to a case is that I know the record so well as the record, as opposed to someone who went through the trial and sometimes has remembrances of what happened at trial that don't appear in the record that the court of appeal will be using so i 100 percent agree you have to know that record backward and forward and if any advantage an appellate practitioner has in that regard would be that you don't have cluttered of all the other memories surrounding the trial that sort of start to affect what you thought happened at that at the
0: trial judge Zambro how about you do you have yeah, any, I, see I, any I, downsides I, to what well, i think as judge Parr noted that it is good to see Young, good younger attorneys appearing with regard to the specialization i think we don't see it to the extent you see it at the supreme court and then actually in the supreme court there's you know it only came on my radar screen where you there was really a specialized supreme court bar probably about 25 years ago i remember there was a 1997 or so article in the aba journal that said that there is in effect a supreme court practicing bar. It, keep in mind that it's it's not the most lucrative part of a firm. I mean, for example, I could do a bankruptcy case in Delaware, a big bankruptcy case, have twelve or fifteen people on it, and within two weeks could bill more than an appellate practitioner could bill for a year's worth of work in connection with a big matter. It's just it's it's the number of bodies you have and and, and the it's it's a different a different way of dealing with a practice but it's also a high profile way of dealing with it and it's important very important so where I see specialist you'll if there is a case that counsel is attempting to develop for a petition for cert to the Supreme Court you may see the you you'll see quite often a specialist come in at the appellate level even if that person was not involved at the Trial court level or the administrative level, because there is a theme that is trying to be developed by that counsel for a possible cert petition a few months hence, no matter how the case comes out.
2: I think the theme, uh, uh, the theme of developing a theme throughout trial. Trial lawyers know that very well, and I think that continues through uh, through appeal as well. So. Well, I think we're uh, sort of at the edge of our time here today. Did we cover everything? I think we covered most of the things we really wanted to say. Any parting words of advice?
0: Uh, I just echo what Judge Breyer said. Credibility is the coin of the realm.
3: I think we pretty well covered it, Todd. <laughs> All right. Well, I like the I like
2: ending on credibility point too because that is uh something i try very hard to carefully guard uh, particularly in courts that i appear before on uh, numerous occasions so i uh, appreciate you joining us today for our, our podcast and uh, it's been been
0: good talking to both of you same here thank you very much to both of you
3: thank you
1: well this is Ann, and i'd just like to thank you all again some really interesting insights that i think both appellate lawyers and and even non-appellate lawyers can appreciate and take part. So thank you all for participating, and um, to our audience, be sure to tune in for our remaining episodes. We're happy to have you in this this crazy new world and hope everyone is staying safe and sane. Uh, We'll see you next time, thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent that. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.